16. Earlier this year, this summer, I had the privilege of meeting with one of my mentors and good friends, Dr. Bookman. You've heard of him in our own pulpit before, and he was preaching at a nearby church in Hutch, and at Grace Bible in Hutch, and uh, contacted me to see if I would get together with him and just have some time together. I just thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. As we were talking together over coffee, he reminded me of a colleague of his who's an archaeologist in the Middle East. He lives in Jordan. Uh, and makes his living by shooting video and putting together YouTube videos uh, of the highest quality uh, that highlight the land that he calls it where God came down. And the whole point of of his videos is to, uh, with archaeological, historical, and biblical evidence, to dovetail all of those together to prove uh, that the Bible is trustworthy, that what is presented in the Word can indeed be trusted. You can stake your soul Upon it. This man's name is Joel Kramer. And so I started watching Joel Kramer's videos after I had talked with Dr. Bookman and was so encouraged as I saw these connections he was making between uh, historical evidence and archaeological evidence, stuff I would never know how to dig up figuratively that he had dug up literally and understand how it fit together with the biblical evidence. And it was so, so helpful. So helpful to me, actually, that I decided I'm going to create a small group out of this. Like, I, I want to do more of this. Uh, and so that's what my small group has been doing as we walk through these videos together and just find them super helpful. The premise for how he presents these truths is that the land where God came down to man is a land filled with evidence of the facts of what God has done. These sites where God came still hold valuable clues which prove Scripture to be true, the record historically accurate. As we approach the Christmas season, as I was wrestling with those things in my mind and my heart and just contemplating all that, I was gripped with fresh joy with that thought. And I want you to be too over the next three weeks that that God came down to us. It's an astounding thought. It's a, a showstopper. It's one that should take your breath away every time you think that God came to us. This is the core of Scripture's message. It's also the core of the Christian gospel. But it's not at the core of of how mankind thinks about God and the afterlife and attaining to some kind of peace with God. In fact, left to human reason and to human religion, we've long been attempting to rise to God's level, right? It started shortly after the flood. I mean, it was happening before the flood as well. But shortly after, you remember the the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11 where They created this massive ziggurat, and it still has its footings uh, obvious and known. You can watch Joel Kramer's video on that. I would recommend you do that. If you need a link, I'll send that to you later. It's a tremendous expose of the size and the enormity of this tower that they were building so as to raise themselves to God's level, to get as high to the heavens as they could get, and, and to bring with them an offering. And so the logic is get as high as we can and bring the best that we can so as to call God down to us, to appease Him and and to secure His favor and His blessing for us. In the Old Testament, after the Tower of Babel incident and God breaks that up through the the, uh, breaking up of languages, then we see this happening repeatedly, especially the high places that abound in the Old Testament narrative when they find the, the local... Uh, highest evidence or outcropping geographically speaking. And so they go there and they 
They bring their gift, their sacrifice, and it could be a, a food sacrifice or a wine sacrifice or uh, a sacrifice of their flock or their herd or, or some promiscuous act they would perform up there as a sacrifice in their twisted thinking or even their own children they would bring with them to the high places and, and offer their infant sons and daughters to appease the gods and to draw the gods down to this higher place and bring blessing with them. The closer the worshiper was to the heavenly dwelling places of God, the more likely the gods were to hear and to come. This is really an essential doctrine in man-made religion, that, that man isn't good as we are. We must ascend to a higher level. We must work hard to to fix this great gulf that, that there's something wrong with us. And, and even if you have an atheistic worldview, which is very much predominant in our postmodern American world, where, uh, or at least agnostic, where there, if there's a God, we can't know him, or likely there is no God, and, and we are our own God, and your truth is yours, and my truth is mine. And, and yet, even in that godless worldview, we understand something's wrong. And we understand death is coming. And we... We have to find a way to fix this death problem. And so what we do in our man, uh, human wisdom way of thinking is, is try to elevate ourselves. Find a way beyond our current experience and existence so as to, to get something higher and better and secure eternal blessing in some way. And so science and technology, for example, are, are viewed to be mankind's ticket to avoiding death. In fact, this is the new God in postmodern Western ways of thinking. If we can just design the right tools and technology that can integrate into your brain known as transhumanism and, and make you some kind of, of human and computer mix so that you can defy the reality of death and be raised to a higher level, you can secure the blessing which gets you out of dying and you can have eternal life. This is how they're talking. They're using those words. This, this is not new. This is man-made religion from the oldest of days to the present. But at the heart of the Christian gospel is the exact opposite message. And it's a glorious one. And it's that God came to us. We don't have to rise up to Him. We don't have to meet some expectation He has so as to secure His favor. We don't have to geographically get higher and bring our best sacrifice and, and hope to secure His favor. No, he takes all the initiative. He sees us in our need and He takes all the initiative and, and pierces our existence and comes to us through His Son. This is the core of what we celebrate this time of year, filled with joy because God came down to us when the Father sent the Son into the world to save the world from its sins. Over the next three weeks, I want to turn our spiritual eyes toward this truth that God came down to us. This week, I want to look at the Old Testament appearances of God, where God penetrated Old Testament history and came at unique moments for unique purposes to make himself known. Next week, I want to go to the nativity and show you that Christ came to us and the incarnation of the Son into our existence, taking upon himself human form and becoming a servant, a slave of all, so as to ransom some. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to turn our eyes away from 
the first coming. We'll, we'll think about it as we sing, but in the sermon, we'll look to the coming that is yet to be, the second coming. When God will come to us and he'll dwell with us in the new Jerusalem, on the new earth, and our dwelling place will be with him and his with us. It'll be an astounding, astounding study. Consider with me this morning a few instances where God came down in the Old Testament times. In reality, you could say this is kind of the spine of the Old Testament. This is one of the, the backbones that runs through a theme you could follow from Genesis to Malachi when God enters in and intervenes into human history, whether through vision or prophetic voice or a, an appearance of the Son of God before he came as Jesus in Bethlehem. In fact, Genesis opens with uh, the curtain of human history being pulled back on a scene where God comes down seemingly daily in the garden to fellowship with Adam and Eve. It's an astounding scene, a sinless uh, paradise with Adam and Eve and fellowship with God. Their rebellion against God earns them, as you know, separation from God. They're expelled from the garden, and they no longer have that constant daily fellowship with Him. But that doesn't mean that His interactions then cease until the coming of Jesus. Rather, he appears, as I said, in visions and speaks through his prophets and speaks to individuals. And sometimes he even dwells among his people, namely when they're wandering in the wilderness. And he comes and dwells with them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Or when they established the tabernacle in the temple, he came in his Shekinah glory and he, he dwelled in the Holy of Holies in their midst where they would see the manifest presence of the glory of God. But there's a very unique experience, an encounter in the Old Testament in which Jesus appears and comes to people before he comes in Bethlehem. Before he comes in the womb of Mary, we see certain times in key Old Testament texts where the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord or the angel of Jehovah, depending on your translation in the English, appears in a scene. There's around 70 references in the Old Testament to the angel of Jehovah. I thought about touching them all, but we're not going to do that this morning. There's only a handful of those 70 in which it's really clear that, that God appeared in human form. There's seven to eight or nine, depending on how you slice them. We're just going to consider four of those this morning. And so what I want to turn your attention to is where it is in the Old Testament that the angel of the Lord comes, and it is clear that that appearance is in human form. And that human form is seen by the one who experiences it to be God himself. Now these are best known as Christophanies. You've heard that word before. It's an appearance of Christ. This term is defined by James Borland as those unsought, intermittent, and temporary visible and audible manifestations of God the Son in human form by which God communicated something to certain conscious human beings on earth prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. It was a mouthful for me to say and for you to hear. But essentially these are intermittent, sporadic, not very often, human, very real experiences, appearances of Jesus Christ before he was born in Bethlehem. These appearances, you might say, are sporadic and spectacular. 
And they're all kind of clustered in the Old Testament narrative between the middle of Genesis and, and the book of Judges, the period of the Judges, from Abraham to Manoah. Now, there's a few others outside of that that God obviously comes and the angel of, of Yahweh and appears and has a message, but these are these unique in-person experiences. And you have to ask yourself, or I'm going to make you ask yourself, why does God do this? Why does he do this? Why does the Son of God leave the throne room of heaven and before he's going to come in his incarnate state as Jesus of Nazareth, why does he appear at key moments in the Old Testament? What is he seeking to accomplish? Well, there's a lot of theological reasons for that. Good for a Sunday school class to discuss. Reasons like the progress of Revelation continuity between Old and New Testament, preparation for the incarnation of Christ to reveal to us in an introductory way in the Old Testament the, the deity of Jesus and the triunity of the Godhead. Those are some of the theological reasons for why this happens, and, and those are good and helpful. But I want to, this morning, show you the, the real practical reasons for this. I want to encourage your soul with what I think God was communicating to these individuals, and I think beyond them to, to you and to me, as we seek to follow Christ. As we look at each one, you'll see key truths about the God who came down in key moments. We look first at Hagar in Genesis 16, verses 6 through 13. It's the encounter of the angel of Yahweh and this slave from Egypt named Hagar. She's the slave, the slave, excuse me, of Sarai, who's the wife of Abram. They've been promised, Abram and Sarai have been promised by God to be the parents of a promised child through whom they would have a massive nation, a, a large group of descendants who would be a blessing to the world. Many years have passed since the promise of God in this moment, and Sarai has not gotten pregnant. And so she convinces her husband, Abram, to take matters into their own hands, and this is so often the struggle in the Old Testament narrative is, is do we trust God or do we do it ourselves? This is your struggle today. Do I trust God or do I do it myself? Do I trust God and His way and His plan? Do I be faithful to, with what He's told me or do I try to make it happen by my own devices? Well, Abram took Hagar to be his wife so that she could become the surrogate mother for this promised child. Of course, that was not in God's plan. God allowed it, ordained it, and used it. Hagar conceived a child. Sarah perceived that Hagar then looked upon her with, with contempt. And so Sarai was angry. That's where we pick up the story in verse 6, Genesis 16, verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, the servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. Verse 
verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. This is not just an angel, a created angel of the Lord coming to deliver a message from the Lord to Hagar. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, of the Christ. He is coming as God in human form to communicate to Hagar a very important message at a most critical time. Hagar's life was turned upside down and inside out by decisions that she could not make for herself. Her life was destroyed and devastated by the realities she had just experienced. She now finds herself unwanted and on the run, alone and confused, unsure about the future, and lost in the wilderness, likely trying to make her way back to Egypt to her previous home pregnant and not knowing what was going to happen next. And I ask you again, why here? Why now? Why to Hagar? Why does God choose at this moment for the first of His appearances in human form in the Old Testament to come to this slave from Egypt, cast out and despised, wandering and lost, broken and despairing. The angel of the Lord ministers to her, asks her a question to draw her out. Now, you know the answer to the question has theological reasons, right? That God needed Hagar to stay with Abram so that Abram could raise Ishmael as part of the fulfillment of prophecy for Ishmael to be a great nation and to be a constant thorn in the side of his brother Isaac and his offspring. But that's, that's not all that's happening. There's very practical, personal reasons for this. Christ came down to this downcast woman at her lowest point, drew her out of her sorrow and despair, asked her where she was from, where she was going. And then what does He do? He tells her what to do and what's going to happen. He says to her, Hagar, go back to Sarai and submit to her. And by the way, Hagar, when you go back, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Ishmael, and, and you need to know he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. This is not a compliment. And everybody's going to hate him, and he's going to hate everybody. But go back, submit, obey, and worship. Finally, even with that difficult message, Hagar felt heard. Hagar felt cared for in her agony and rejection. God had come down to her and, and told her, here's what you should do, and told her, this is how it's going to go. And in the naming of your son, you'll have a constant reminder that I've met you here. That I heard your cries of affliction and your pleas for mercy. And her response is to call God a new name, the God who sees. And she doesn't just mean the God who, who sees with his eyes and understands what's happening from a distance. Observes as an uninterested watcher. No, she means the God who cares for me. 
the God who watches after me, the God who, who knows everything and is intricately involved to bring all things about for his glory and my good. Friend, do you know this feeling this morning? Do you know feeling downcast and looked over as though no one hears you or sees you or cares about you? Teenager, do you, do you know that experience? Trying to make a way in the world and figure out who you are and you feel like nobody cares? Nobody sees you. You're overlooked at every turn in school, at home, at work. Nobody knows you're there. Nobody knows you exist. Suffering saint, do you know this? I mean, you know despair and, and hurt and pain that no one in your life knows you deal with, right? You can, you can often sing from the depths of your soul, that Negro spiritual, no one knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow. And, and you know what? You're right. No one in this world understands the, the depth of agony and difficulty God's entrusted to you. But from what we see with Hagar, can you, can you know this for you today, that God hears you. And God sees you. God knows the agony of your soul and understands the difficulty of your path. And nowhere is this more clearly communicated than in the coming birth of Jesus, the Christ. What we see in this appearance to Hagar is, is validated and magnified when we turn our eyes to the womb of a virgin named Mary and the manger in Bethlehem. Jesus came into our existence, came down to us, and, and took upon himself fully the, the reality of our humanity, our, our human existence. He lived our agony. He experienced our pain. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in a way we can't even begin to comprehend, let alone match. He bore that to the cross of Calvary, especially the agony of our own sin. And He came to let us know. Just like He came to Hagar, He came in Bethlehem to let us know that He hears us as we cry out for salvation. And He cares for us. He watches after us. And He provides for our salvation through His incarnation. Turn to Genesis 18 and see the next in Abraham. When God appears to Abraham and proves to him that he is the God who promises and the God who protects. God had often visited Abraham from Genesis 12 all the way up to Genesis 18. Spoken to him in key moments. Appeared to him in visions in Genesis, in a vision in Genesis 15. And here in Genesis 18, at a really key moment in, in Abraham's journey, God came to him in human form with two other angels. With two angels, I should say, not other angels. This is not an angel. This is Christ in human form. Abraham had so much encounter and experience with God appearing to him and speaking to him that he was called in Isaiah 41 the friend of God. Repeated in James 2 as the friend of God. Here in chapter 18, God comes to Abraham in this critical point. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, is now 13 years old. Sarah still has not had the promised child. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. They're not having a child, right? This is not happening by human 
reason. It seems like a laughable dream at this point for God to keep his promise. It seems like God was a forgetful God, like he had gotten amnesia about what he had said 13 years prior. But indeed, he comes in this key moment. On this one day when Abram was out by his tent under the oaks of Mamre, which, by the way, Joel Kramer has another video on this site. It's an astounding video exposing the archaeology of this very site where God came to Abraham. Three travelers appear outside the tent of Abraham and Sarah, and as was the custom, they quickly gather a meal to care for the physical needs for these men, which shows you they appeared to them as men in the customary dress of that day. They looked no different than normal travelers, though it was the pre-incarnate Christ in human form. That is astounding. God came in human form for this moment, for this message. We find out there are no ordinary men. One of them is the angel of the Lord. The other two are angels on a mission of bringing judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah. As they were eating, look at what Christ says to Abraham in verses 9 and 10, and then down to verse 14. Genesis 18, verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, this is the angel of the Lord now called in verse 10, Yahweh. This is Christ before he comes in Bethlehem, appearing in human form to Abraham. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent, as would you. She laughed. It's a laughable statement from a human perspective. Look down at verse 14. The Lord says, why did she laugh? She will indeed bear a child. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Why does the Godhead determine that this is a moment in which the pre-incarnate Christ needs to enter in in human form and speak face-to-face with Abraham, Abraham, the friend of God. Because faith in the promise hangs in the balance. They're at a a key tipping point of, of struggling with belief. Can God be trusted? Will He keep His word? And so Christ comes to them and says, I have promised the Lord is able. Yes, you cannot naturally have a child. But by this time next year, you will have a son by divine means. The Lord is able to do it, Christ says to Abraham's face. And then the men head out in the direction of Sodom. And they, as they head out, you see how the Lord thinks about this moment. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. We see the internal wrestlings of the pre-incarnate Christ as he wrestles with, do I talk with Abraham about this or not? And of course he is going to and plans to, and so he does. And he tells Abraham what the plan is. That these two angels are going to go to Sodom and they're going to investigate and see if it's really as bad as the the cry to heaven has been about Sodom and Gomorrah. He does this so that Abraham has the chance 
to cry out to God, his friend, and ask for protection for his nephew. And so it's that really weird exchange that follows where Abraham says, Lord, if there's 50 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare the city? Yes, if there's 50, I'll spare. Okay, well, five less. 45? Sure, I'll spare. Okay, 40. And it goes all the way down to 10. You remember that, right? It's a really strange interaction. At the heart of it is Abraham convinced that this is God in the flesh in front of him. This is the, the Lord who can show mercy. And he's pleading with God to spare his nephew. Well, you know how the story goes. They, they go to Sodom. The angel of the Lord departs and returns to the glories of heaven. The two angels go to Sodom, and you're, you know they, they find it worse than can be spoken in mixed company. It's awful. And as they do, they then turn to rescue Lot and his wife and their two daughters. And so they flee the city, and as they, they flee the city, God rains down fire and sulfur upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys the city in righteous and holy judgment. But what what happens? Abraham's prayer is answered, isn't it? The only righteous people in the city were saved from the city. So God didn't spare the city, but He did save the righteous. He rescued those who by faith left with the angels, flawed as they were, believe me. Yet trusting God and following the angels' commands, and by faith they were saved. Why did God come to Abraham at this point in Genesis 18? It was to affirm his promise and to respond to Abraham's prayer of protection and salvation. Beloved, this truth about God is gloriously proven and amplified in the birth of Christ, isn't it? Wasn't it in the incarnation that we're assured of God's intent to fulfill every one of his promises? Doesn't Paul teach us that In Jesus, we have the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. And isn't it by Christ coming into our world in human form, in a baby in Bethlehem, isn't that proved that God intends to keep all of His promises? Doesn't His life of righteous perfection, doesn't His substitutionary death of sinless perfection, doesn't His full dying on the cross being buried in a borrowed tomb, being raised three days later to the fullness of life, overcoming sin and death and hell, ascending to heaven 40 days later to the Father's right side, assuring all of His followers that He would soon return. Doesn't all of that prove to us that God intends to keep every one of His promises? You see, giving Sarah a baby past age is child's play in comparison to bringing the Son of God into a virgin womb, living a sinless life in a sin-cursed world, to lay down that life in sacrificial atonement for you and for me, to overcome sin and death and hell. And don't we know because of this that God is then a God of mercy? And being of God of mercy, shouldn't he be petitioned to show mercy to those we know and love, the lots of our life, who find themselves in Sodom, living in the world, being corrupted by the world, being sucked into the deceitfulness and destruction of the world? Can't we, like Abraham, say to God, God, what about my loved one? Please. 
rescue them, save them, show mercy to them. Turn now to Genesis 32 to see the God who breaks and blesses. Genesis 32, the God who breaks and blesses. We see this in Jacob and the angel of the Lord coming to him. This is where the angel of the Lord wrestles with Jacob through the night and finally deals that decisive blow right before dawn and touches his hip and puts it out of socket. And Jacob is forced to finally relent. Though still clinging to the angel of the Lord, he is finally broken. And you remember, he's renamed. And being renamed, he understands and sees that this man he wrestled with is no man. You know a little bit about Jacob. I, at least I hope you remember some of this. He's self-reliant and self-confident. He's a conniving man. His name in the Hebrew means deceiver. He's a master manipulator. He, he finds every way he can to work circumstances to his advantage. Earlier in life, when his brother Esau had come in and was starving and hungry and just needed something to eat, and Jacob just happened to have a, a pot of porridge ready and and convinced Esau to sell to him his birthright for a bowl of soup. It's an astounding work of manipulation by a master manipulator. Later on, as, I, as Isaac gets older, Rebekah and Jacob conspire to make sure that Jacob receives the blessing instead of Esau. And so they conspire together to, to make sure that their blind father is deceived as he puts his hand on on Jacob, the non-hairy one, though clothed with animal skins, and knows his voice is not Esau's, but is deceived, and then pronounces the blessing on Jacob's head. And then Esau walks in, and you know the story. He's angry, so angry he wants to kill his brother. Those of us who have brothers have been there before, right? Wanted to find a way to put an end to this whole thing. Like, what is going on? But this anger persisted, and he was determined to kill Jacob. And so the, the plotting, the manipulating again by Rebekah and Jacob was to send Jacob away to find a wife at his uncle's house, hundreds of miles away. And so they send him away and he spends 20 years. He wasn't supposed to spend that long, but he got himself connived and manipulated. He left a single man and returns married to four women with a multitude of children. He comes with a whole camp returning to the land and he comes back to the land because the angel of the Lord had appeared to him and said to him, go back. This is your promised land. You're supposed to be there. Return. I'll make sure you get there safely. Well, they're going back into the land, him and, and all of his massive congregation of family and flocks and servants and wealth. And as they come, those ahead of Jacob, he sends them ahead to find out where Esau is, and they find out that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. Now, 20 years ago, you left the land, and your brother wanted to kill you. You're coming back into the land, and your brother's coming after you with 400 men. What does that communicate to you? I'm going to die, and everything I own is going to be taken or destroyed, right? That's exactly what Jacob thinks. He is fearful, so fearful, he finally prays a prayer of humble contrition. In verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. 
I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you, you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have come, become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with their children. He not only prays, but he continues to connive. He takes part of his belongings and he sets apart a massive gift. Maybe a bribe would be a better word. He sends ahead of him 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. You know what he's doing? He's trying to convince Esau, listen, I'm really sorry I did everything I did to you. Can we be friends? Can you not kill me? Can you just take my gift and turn around and go home? And we can dwell in this big land together. This is his effort to save his own skin from Esau. As the sun sets, he fears that before dawn breaks, he and his family are going to be destroyed. And so he takes his family, his wife and his kids, and he, he puts them back across the ford of the Jacob, across the river crossing. He puts them behind him. And he goes up on a hill that overlooks the valley over which Esau would have to come if he's coming to Jacob. And so he puts himself between Esau and his family, and he puts himself on the highest position geographically to see Esau coming. And the text picks up the story in amazing ways. In verse 22, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. He's the lone sentry standing watch for his family. And then just matter-of-factly, in the middle of verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, you know the story so well. You know who this guy is, but put that out of your mind for a minute. Who do you think Jacob thinks this is? This is Esau's best warrior coming ahead of him like some army commander, some army ranger in the middle of the night to destroy Jacob and remove him from the scene. And so they wrestle together in, in military fashion, I'm convinced, trying to to save his own life, Jacob is, and protect his family. And, and they wrestle all night, which is an astounding statement. How does that happen? I don't know what they do. The story goes on, verse 25. They wrestled to the breaking of the day in the end of verse 24. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip, hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, deceiver, manipulator. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. You see, Jacob in this moment wrestles with this man, relentless and tenacious, 
self-reliant and self-dependent. My own strength will get me out of this. It's gotten me out of everything else. I'll find a way through this. If I hold on long enough, if I thrash another time, I'll, I'll loosen his grip and win the victory all night long. Just before dawn, the decisive blow is struck and Jacob's put in a position where he can no longer function normally. His hip being put out of socket. Now he has to essentially admit defeat, yet he still refuses to let go. Clinging to this man, knowing that there's something unique going on here. This is no man of Esau. This is another man from another place. The man draws him out. What's your name? This is Christ in human form. He knows his name. He's drawing out Jacob to confess his own character. My character is deceiver, manipulator. My character is self-dependent, self-reliant one. My character is conniving and contriving. But you've broken me, angel of the Lord. I confess that to you. Then the angel of the Lord renames him and calls him Israel, he who strives with God. In this encounter with the Almighty, Jacob is given a new identity and he's given a, a unique blessing. Why did Christ come here in this moment? He came to confront Jacob in his pride and self-reliance. Jacob had prayed for protection because he was fearful, but then he had taken matters into his own hands to protect himself. Here God shows him, listen, if you're going to be protected from your brother Esau, it's going to be because I choose to protect you. And only because of that. Christ comes as in the form of a man to wrestle with him throughout the night. And I ask you, why so long? He could have ended it a, a 30 seconds into this. He could have ended it five seconds into this thing. Why all night does he wrestle with Jacob? Isn't it to show Jacob that his greatest strength is entirely inadequate? No matter how resolved Jacob was to win and to protect his family and himself, he simply couldn't do it. Not against the man on the hill and not against his brother Esau and not against any other enemy he would ever encounter. Jacob was stripped in this moment of all of his pride, all of his self-reliance, and he was remade by this encounter with God. And being remade, he was given amazing blessing from God. The promise of prosperity and peace and a future. And so too, beloved with us, God enters into our world and confronts our arrogant self-dependence. He still wrestles with us and brings us to the end of ourselves, does He not? He still shows us again and again that we are not enough and He is enough. And no matter how many times in your seasoned saintly journey you've learned this lesson, there is another layer to learn. I find. No matter how many times you've wrestled with the Lord and been humbled and had to confess your self-reliance and fall upon Him for His grace and His help and found Him to be enough, you walk away and tomorrow you start it again. It's this is God in His grace coming down to us, striving with us, humbling us. And blessing us. 
This is seen on an infinite level when Jesus took on human flesh in a manger in Bethlehem. Isn't this where we see human weakness inhabited by divine strength? In this baby laid in an animal feeding trough? Doesn't that truth only increase as Jesus lives and serves and ultimately gives his life at the cross in a way never before seen? And yet in that moment at Calvary, that moment of abject human failure, human weakness, human frailty, it is here we see the greatest display of divine strength, right? Isn't it there at the cross of Calvary that we see the glory of the power of God? As through this weak sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. And it's here at the cross that we are given our greatest blessings in Christ. That we're seated in heavenly places with Him because He went through that for us. God blesses after He breaks. And lastly, I want to show you quickly God who's present in peace-giving. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6, a little further past. If you hit 1 Samuel, you're too far. Judges chapter 6. The truth we learn about God from this encounter with Gideon in Judges 6 is that he is present and peace-giving. Gideon lived at a time where you know the story. The children of Israel would live for themselves and rebel against God, and they would fall into slavery and enslavement and empowerment from another nation over them, and they would grow tired and weary of it finally, and they would turn back to God and cry out to Him for help and mercy, and He would send to them a judge, one who would rise up in power and divine strength and enabling and overthrow their enemies and restore them to uh, joy and peace as a nation. They would serve God for a while again, and then they would go right back in their rebellion, and the cycle would repeat itself. That's the cycle of the book of Judges, this period of their history. Well, here we find Gideon in the period of the Midianites who are ruthless rulers over God's people in Israel. And God sent this judgment upon them, and then he intervenes into Gideon's life in verse 11, Judges 6, 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now you're, you don't use a winepress and you don't beat out wheat. This is not where you do this. There's nothing about this that makes sense unless you're under siege and you're trying to get wheat into your house without the Midianites seeing it and stealing it. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, and you should hear the humor here, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You're hiding in the wine press, you man of courage. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, and you see his courage here, the Lord is with us. Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? You're kidding, right? I'm hiding out in a wine press, beating out wheat. Go find someone who's at least beating wheat out in the open on their threshing floor. 
My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. He finally got Gideon's attention. Gideon rushed out of the wine press and now went and prepared a meal for this visitor, realizing there's something more happening here. Makes a meal for the visitor, and the angel of the Lord says to him in verse 20 to, to take the meat and the unleavened cakes and to put them on the rock and to pour the broth over them. And so he did that. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. You think Gideon's paying attention now? You think he knows there's something divine happening here? That this visitor was no normal man? That he appeared to be a normal man, but there was something more? And Gideon perceived that this was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah. You know the rest of the story from here. Gideon tears down the altar of, of the Baal in his own town with his father's ox. Then from that, he gathers to himself an army of 32,000 men, which the Lord says this is entirely too many. Whittles it down to 10,000, and the Lord says this is entirely too many. Whittles it down by God's choosing to 300 men, which is entirely impossible. And says with these 300 men, you're going to go against the mighty Midianites and deliver Israel. And you know the story, God used their trickery on the mountaintop around the Midianite encampments to create chaos, and then they slayed one another, and Gideon and his men prevailed and delivered Israel. I ask you, why does the pre-incarnate Christ come here to this place, to this man? He comes in the weakness of a humanly impossible mission and situation, and comes to the weakest of men, Gideon himself. And in him we see ourselves, don't we? We're all Gideon in that sense. Not many of us are mighty or strong. We're all weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. But called, like Gideon was, as followers of Christ, the humanly impossible task. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands. Church, be ambassadors for Christ. Ministers of reconciliation, going into the world to reconcile them to God and God to them. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. For I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. You can't do any of those things I just said. You, you can't do one of them in your own power. These are impossible missions for the followers of Christ. And I've just given you a few. Like Gideon, you stand before the voice of the Lord saying, I can't do this. And God comes to Gideon and comes to you and says to you, be faithful and obedient. I am with you, and I bring peace. 
He is the God who is present, and He is the God who brings peace, helping us do His work by His power for His glory. This is confirmed and amplified for us in the incarnation of Jesus, right? Doesn't Jesus, in His coming in Bethlehem, rescue us from our enemies, our Midianites, as it were, our sin and our rebellion and its consequence, death and eternal separation? Doesn't Jesus rescue us from our enemy? And in rescuing us from our enemy, doesn't He put us on mission to serve Him in a way that's impossible for us, but possible only in Him? And doesn't He promise like He did to Gideon, I will be with you? Like He did to Joshua in Joshua 1? Don't be afraid. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage. For I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friend, I don't know what you face this week. I don't know what challenges the Lord has providentially put in your path. I don't know what knots He's put into your life that you can't untie no matter how you work at it. But I know He is with you. And being with you, He brings to you a peace that in this moment is a peace that passes your understanding and unto eternity is a promise of full satisfaction and joy in Him. So beloved, do you see how these pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, these appearances before His full appearance in Bethlehem, paved the way for Him to come do you see how God came down to, to us for our benefit and for His glory? Do you hear Him saying to you today that He is the God who hears you and sees you? He's the God that affirms His promises to you. He protects you in response to your prayers and prayers for those you love. Do you hear Him saying to you that He's the God who, who breaks you to bless you? Do you hear him saying to you that he is the God who is present and peace-giving? May God take his word and apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the glories of Christ Jesus seen in these texts. Thank you for showing us that these are just shadows of the glory to be seen in the fullness of his arrival in the Gospels. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk forward with these truths embedded upon our thinking and gripped by our hearts of faith. I pray for those among us who most desperately need to know that you hear and see them, that you will keep your promises to them and protect them, that you might be breaking them, but you are blessing and will bless them, that you are at work to be with them and to give them peace. Father, would you encourage them with these thoughts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.